every person speaking against the name Isaac Okoro and Jetty Osmond. In mockery, accusations, slanders, and lies, may the mercies of God be withdrawn from you. May your husbands and wives become widows. Let your children become fatherless. Let your seed become vagabonds on the earth. Let the words of your mouth and your words of your hands be returned back to you. Let it go down your throat and choke you slowly until your days become few on the earth. Keep our names out of your mouth in the name of Jesus. Have a blessed day. Two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, Bob Schmidt, your Cleveland Cavalier fan slash host slash voice of Fox Sports Radio. And thank you to everyone who is tuned in a big week in Cavalier country, a big win streak up to four games in a row after what was a start to finish clinic tonight. One of the most satisfying games to watch on both ends of the floor as the Cleveland Cavaliers routed the Utah Jazz in Cleveland during Lowry Markkinen's homecoming, Colin Sexton's homecoming, and the big story coming out of tonight is, well, there's a couple. I would have thought as the game began that it was going to be Donovan Mitchell. Certainly the focus would be on him, and he did not disappoint in the first quarter as he came out of the gates, guns blazing, eight of the first 10 points, 11 points in his first shift. It looked like a 40-piece was on the way from Donovan Mitchell. But over the course of the game, what we actually saw was a very balanced effort from the Cleveland Cavaliers with seven scores in double digits. Some notable accomplishments throughout the game. The first, I'll bring up Isaac Okoro. A second consecutive game with double-digit scoring and some impressive defense. Most notably, the third quarter when, after giving up 22 points to Lowry Markkinen in the first half of action, the Cavaliers shifted their defensive strategy to put Isaac Okoro on Lowry Markkinen, who finished the game with just 24 points. That's still very good, I realize. But two points in the second half is exactly what you want to see out of a defensive assignment for Isaac Okoro. And of particular note, it's not just that he's chipping in with scoring. He had a beautiful play tonight. More credit, I suppose, goes to Mobley. But Mobley gathered an offensive rebound and fired it up to Isaac Okoro, who was streaking. He got out in transition. I thought he made some excellent decisions with the ball. And he's playing, not with any tentative behavior at all. He's just loose, fluid. In the third quarter, he gave eight points, and that was a big quarter for the Cavs because the Jazz came out of the half with an immediate 8-0 run. And in past games across the course of this season, we've seen times where the Cavs have let their foot off the gas pedal and let teams get back into the game that they had no place doing. But Okoro was one of the big reasons why at the end of that quarter, despite that initial 8-0 run, the Cavs outscored the Jazz 28-27. Do not let the 23 points fool you. Jordan Clarkson had a miserable game tonight, and there was plenty of times where Clarkson, pressing the action in his 21 shot attempts, 
tried to take the ball into the teeth of the Cavalier defense. There were several times he was trying to bait whistles. And Okoro managed to miss getting called for nearly any fouls on those contests. And in earlier parts of the season, that is certainly what we'd see. But I will come back to this. Second point I want to make. Kevin Love. The second quarter of action for Kevin Love saw a stretch of basketball in which he blocked a shot. He followed it up by stopping a three-on-one break by the Utah Jazz the very next possession. Shortly after, he had a three-pointer to push the Cavs' lead to 17 and then took a charge. A three and then a charge, that's vintage Kevin Love. And while his shot is still not where it was at the beginning of the season, neither are his shot attempts. He seems to be playing slightly more tentative on that end of the floor. That's understandable. He does have the hand injury that will linger for a bit, and hopefully at some point he'll shake off that rust. But kudos to Jetty Osman, who contributed a massive fourth quarter, which we will get to in a moment. Love has certainly been struggling in recent days and weeks with his shot. Tonight only took three attempts. And since that injury, back on November 19th, 18th, 19th, somewhere in that range, he is shooting just 33% from the field and just 26% from three. Before that, Kevin was shooting 43% from the floor and 41% from three. So a noticeable dip, especially on the three-point efficiency. But again, double-digit rebounds. And in that second quarter, we got to see excellent defense from Love and excellent offense from Jared Allen. Jared Allen with a 20-10 night tonight. And a lot of that damage was done in the second quarter. As Allen poured in eight points with three boards, did not miss a shot in the second quarter. And by halftime, this team was decidedly in control. They entered the third quarter with an 18-point lead, and it didn't get any closer. By the fourth quarter, they came out to begin the fourth quarter with basically four backups and Mobley. We got Levert, we got Neto, we got Osman, and we had... Who I'm forgetting somebody. And we had love. Now that brings us to what was effectively garbage time. And this is the other main talking point, I suppose, at least for the Cavalier side of the ball. Fourth quarter, Jetty Osman, who scored just right out of the gate when they switched to the backups. He hit five three-pointers. And he had 12 in a row before any other Cavalier even scored. So for a game in which he scored 22 points overall, which was good for the second highest output on the team behind Donovan Mitchell's 23. Osman did it with elite efficiency. 8 of 10 from the floor. He hit 5 of 6 of his 3-point attempts. And to get 20 points in the fourth quarter, I looked it up because I was curious and I couldn't recall top of mind. But I do remember from the last win, well, the two wins ago, I'm sorry, against the Pacers, Donovan Mitchell's highest scoring fourth quarter was 18 points. And we saw that against the Pacers. To think that Osmond tonight just casually said, nah, I'm going to one-up that. Amazing. And that 20-point output puts him second amongst all Cavs in terms of highest scoring quarters this season. The top of that list is, of course, littered with Donovan Mitchell eruptions. But Darius Garland, as you may recall, scored 27 points in the fourth quarter of that Cavalier game against Minnesota back in mid-November. The point differential tonight certainly has done wonders for the net rating of the Cleveland Cavaliers, who after this four wins, who after two straight losses from the Celtics, and yes, Milwaukee did prevail 
against the Pelicans tonight. So they are now sitting atop the Eastern Conference, but the Cavs are just two games back with a chance to even them in the win column when they take them on Wednesday night on their home court. Completely healthy, basically. I know we don't have Dean Wade, Rubio, but you have your core four and you have Isaac Okoro playing some of the best basketball we've seen this season. Now, after tonight's compelling victory against the Utah Jazz, the Cleveland Cavaliers have taken over the top spot in net rating. They are the first overall team, having passed the Boston Celtics, who understandably have slipped slightly in losing two games now to the Orlando Magic, taking their time, reintegrating Robert Williams III. It's no reason for them to freak out necessarily. They still have an incredible record, 22-9. and Their record-setting offense, which was set to be the best one in history, has slipped to just third-best overall as they currently sit. Now, the Cleveland Cavaliers, offensively, they have had their struggles. We know that. In the past 10 games, the Cavs, well, pretty mediocre on offense, 21st in the league. But that's still good for 12th overall over the course of the last season. And in this four-game winning streak, their offensive rating has climbed considerably. They have the seventh best offense. So, progress. Is everything fixed? No. There are still troubling advanced stats, things like, okay, the Cavaliers have been more effective, their offense has been better, when one or the other of Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell is off the floor. Them playing together while still a positive offense is not as positive as each of them manning the helm of the offense individually when they've been splitting time. So it is good to know that when you consider the fact that this has been a team riddled with injuries in the past season. So at least you can feel good, and we saw this when Darius Garland went down the first time, knowing that, okay, as long as one of them is there, we should still be able to produce winning offensive basketball over a stretch of time. But ideally, as they play together longer over the course of the season, we'll start to see that offensive rating creep up with both of them on the floor, where we can get the most out of everyone with all parties involved. Now, the pick-and-roll game has been good, no matter which guy's running it. It's been better with Mitchell than Garland, surprisingly, but that duo, and I'm sure many people saw this, it's been all over social media, it is a very popular stat recently to talk about Donovan Mitchell and Jared Allen producing the best pick-and-roll combination in the NBA. And Donovan Mitchell continuing his tear of excellent basketball. Tonight, he did not really need to assert himself over the course of the game because the Cavaliers, they got a lot out of everyone. So in a night where at least coming out of the gates, it looked like Donovan Mitchell was going to make a statement, he had the luxury of being able to take his foot off the gas, in a sense, because He didn't have to take a ton of shots, just 12 shots to score 23 points. So exceptional, efficient basketball, and he's still dancing around that threshold of being a 30-point-per-game scorer who can average 50, 40, and 90. He's right there. He needs a little surge. Last week, of course, the player of the week in the Eastern Conference, playing incredible, efficient basketball, and it's really just going to come down to volume. A free throw here, a free throw there, and 50, 40, 90. That is very difficult, but he's got a little breathing room in terms of his three-point percentage, slightly less from the field. He can't have any high-volume clunkers, really, or that could derail him. But based on how he's playing early in this season, one of the most efficient above-the-break three-point shooters, one of the most efficient catch-and-shoot guys, just the best basketball we've ever seen 
from Donovan Mitchell, and hopefully, the best is yet to come. Now, just for some context, in terms of players in NBA history who have shot 50, 40, 90, there is one Cavalier who's done it. You may know him, my favorite player of all time, Mark Price. In 1988-1989, he shot exactly 90% from the free throw line, .901. He shot 44% from three-point land and 53% from the field. Now, in terms of that very elite, and when I say very elite, one single player in the entirety of NBA history has done 50, 40, 90, while averaging over 30 points a game. And that is, of course, Steph Curry who did it the season in which the Cavaliers ripped the NBA title away from him behind the biggest comeback in finals history. Down 3-1. You recall that? I think you do. Now, multiple other guys, these names you'll know. There were a few players who came very close to that 50, 40, 90, and 30 points a game. Kevin Durant in 2012-2013, he finished shy in the points per game, 28.1 points per game. Larry Bird, 29.9 points per game in the 87-88 season. Couldn't quite get there the season before that, 28.1 points per game. So if we were going to give somebody a close but not quite award, well, that would be Larry Bird. But both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, two players who we will see very soon, have done it averaging more than 26.9 points per game, but less than 30 points a game. So they have also come very close. Kyrie Irving, in 2020, 2021, although he only played 54 games, his numbers over those 54 games, they got it done. 51, 40, 92. So now the highest field goal percentage in terms of how much room they cleared the bar by, well, that would go to our very own Mark Price, who was one of three guys, Larry Bird being the two others, he did it twice, who averaged 53% from the field But unlike Larry Bird, who just cleared the three-point threshold at 40 and 41% in those two seasons he did it, Mark Price, with excessive breathing room, 44% from three-point range. And we've all known he's an exceptional free-throw shooter. He's an exceptional three-point shooter. This is just an aside. I obviously spend a ton of time reading about the Cavs, following Cavs Twitter, following Cavs Reddit. I saw, and I appreciate Donovan Mitchell as much as the next guy. I love him. What he's done is unbelievable. But for people to say stuff like, Donovan Mitchell is already the second greatest Cavalier, I think it's a bit disrespectful to Mark Price. Because I do consider the longevity and the amount of contributions to be relevant. Somebody said, and this is a direct quote, the only thing Mark Price does better than Donovan Mitchell is pass. And that is a load of shit. If you are unaware of what Mark Price's best quality was, which was hyper-efficiency and incredible pick-and-roll play, you need to educate yourself. We shouldn't be pitting Cavaliers. We shouldn't be pitting a man who's played less than a half a season with the Cleveland Cavaliers against an all-time great. And honestly, I think it's a bit disrespectful towards Mark Price. So I am all for Donovan Mitchell shattering all of our preconceived notions about who the best guard to ever play for this Cavalier franchise was. But it hasn't happened yet, and I think it's a bit slanderous towards Mr. Price to allow those things to come out of your mouth. There's plenty of ways to celebrate Donovan Mitchell without tearing down one of our own. Let's tear down other people, like Draymond Green, like Jalen Brown, 
Hell, I'll tolerate Kyrie Irving, even though that's sort of delving into the same waters as I just said here with Price. But he betrayed us. Price did not. So let's cut that shit out right now, okay? So let's get back to tonight's game. Back to the first half. In the first half, yes, it appeared slightly closer in the first quarter. A lot of that credit goes to the Utah Jazz immediately forcing the action through Lowry Markinen, who got to the foul line more in the first half than the entire Cavaliers roster. He shot 10 free throws in the first half, canning seven of those. The Cavaliers had just seven free throws altogether. So we were looking at a Lowry Markinen 40-point effort, but the Cavaliers adjusted. They decided that Okoro was the guy who was best utilized to slow down Markinen, and Markinen, after taking eight shots in the first half, only took four in the second half, and he only made one of them. So, a couple other points on the Utah Jazz I wanted to point out. Walker Kessler, I enjoy him. It's tough for anybody to hang with Mobley and Jared Allen, especially in their first year. But some of the buckets he made throughout the course of this game, it felt like any time he wasn't looking at the rim, his baskets went in. And he, I mean, he made everything. He was 5 for 5 from the floor, had a couple of blocks, 11 points, 6 rebounds. It's not going to blow you away, the stat line. but. For him to be added to a team with range bigs like Markinen and Olenek, I get what people are so excited about. It's a completely different look than what they had with Gobert, but still with the luxury of having a rookie deal center who can replace a lot of what Gobert provided. Now, he doesn't have the pick-and-roll partner that he used to have. It's more of a gun-happy Jordan Clarkson, and you get some solid play out of Conley, of course, but he's pretty long in the tooth and might find himself offloaded. But Kessler is already a phenomenal shot alterer and blocker. He doesn't look overwhelmed, to be honest. There are moments where he's been overpowered or pinned too far under the rim. But his ability to contest shots is huge for a team that has some space amount bigs in Markinen and Olenek. And although Olenek didn't play tonight, Jared Vanderbilt acquitted himself nicely with three offensive rebounds just in the first half alone. The stat line... Nothing to write home about, seven points, six boards. But I get the appeal and why teams like the Suns have come knocking, asking around about his availability. I would take him 10 days out of 10 over Jay Crowder. He is a nice glue guy who, with better offensive options around him, could take some of the tougher defensive assignments, and he can play big to small pretty effectively. The Jazz have a lot of likable players. Malik Beasley was brutal tonight. This was not, this is a game you just, edit off the highlight reel if you're going to try to shop him around the league. But Jordan Clarkson, not all that efficient. I think the Jazz tonight realized that driving it into the teeth of the Cavalier defense was not going to go their way. A night where Kevin Love sends you packing. I said on Twitter at Fear the Fropod, if you get rejected and then you get a three-on-one fast break broken up by Kevin Love, you should all just forfeit your game checks because that is disgraceful. You were humiliated by a man who tonight contributed three points. But that second quarter felt like as much Kevin Love as it was Jared Allen. Now, the other storyline that got a lot of attention before the game was what kind of welcome would the Cavs give to, and not the Cavs fans. Cavs fans were very receptive. I think everybody here appreciated Lowry Markin and last year, especially towards the second half of the season when he really started to turn it on over the last couple of months. But Colin Sexton, if anyone, 
deserved a tribute, it would be him. He spent his entire rookie contract here. He got injured while playing here. He's been out with a hamstring injury, so he was unable to play tonight. Certainly, I think I, like many people, expected that he would at least get some sort of tribute, but that did not happen. I think it's unfortunate. I think you're going to see that contingent of fans. I think we all know who I'm referring to, who think that Colin Sexton was done dirty by the Cavs. This is definitely a bullet in the chamber for them. But I would have liked to see something done to pay tribute to Colin Sexton. And certainly, I think most Cavs fans are in the column of hoping nothing but the best for those guys. And I I read in the Chris Fedor article earlier today that Lowry Markinen had bought a home earlier this year. What a kick in the balls. You purchase a home in early 2022. I would imagine he escaped interest rate issues, being that he can probably pay in all cash without much of an issue, but then to be traded after just purchasing a home in Cleveland that I can't imagine is the easiest thing to rent out, given the presumed size and cost of the thing. And then he gets traded. So it's working out well for him. Don't get me wrong. He got paid by the Cavs. He's getting to showcase his skills. He's due another payday in just a couple of years here. So I think he set himself up well for success, especially given the situation he's in. A couple of pieces of rough luck here. You buy a house in a skyrocketed market before it falls off considerably, and then you get traded away from the team, which is clearly the most beloved team in all of the NBA as of right now. I think I can speak objectively on that. No? Now that brings us to the last thing that I wanted to discuss on this episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. And thank you to everyone who has subscribed, who has rated it. It's been amazing to see the growth in this year, and that's been largely because of you. Now, I've seen people share the podcast on the Reddit, which, believe me, I appreciate that more than you could know. I see all the people that listen. Sometimes there's a spike in listeners, and I don't know what the hell is happening. And then I look at the the Cavs subreddit, and I see that somebody plugged it on the, on well, on the sub. And, they're, and everybody's been super kind about it. But anyway, back, thank you. But back to the subject of what I was talking about. The Cavs, Donovan Mitchell will get a chance to return to Salt Lake City this year at the NBA All-Star Game. And by the time that you listen to this podcast, the voting will have commenced for the NBA All-Star Game. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Eastern Conference All-Star situation because there has been a lot of discussion about, especially before the season, having had two All-Stars last year, what would be in store for this Cavs team this season? Now, I think we can all agree, and there's really no debate here, that Donovan Mitchell is an all-star. He will be picked as an all-star. He possibly, hopefully, should be voted as a starter for the Eastern Conference All-Stars. As of tonight, before the game, he was doing 30 points, four rebounds, five assists, on just incredible splits, as we spoke of. And he's played most of the Cavalier games. He's played 27 games this season, which is better than some of the notable guys out there who have missed more games. Guys like Joel Embiid. He had played only 20 games before tonight. You had uh, Pascal Siakam, also 20 games before tonight. Jimmy Butler, 20 games before tonight. And Kyrie Irving, who missed a bunch of games for, well, you know, reasons. He played 22 games. But I think the way that things stand now, people have said, well, who gets in? the All-Star game beyond Donovan Mitchell? The likely answer is nobody. But 
While I've seen people suggest, well, Jared Allen could do it, Jared Allen will not do it. And as much as everything played out perfectly for him last season, with Bam missing a bunch of games in the first half, and with Pascal Siaka missing a bunch of games in the first half, and then still it took him as an injury replacement to get picked. This year, he is not going to have that kind of luck. Guys have been healthier. Guys who I think we can all agree, at least statistically, have a better all-star profile than him in Siakam and Bam Adebayo. They have been largely healthy. Adebayo has played 28 games coming into tonight. And Siakam, he's missed a lot of games, but his individual numbers are just insane. 24 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. That is not something you typically get out of a forward. I mean, he was a secondary option earlier in his career, a guy who just feasted on attention paid to others, and now he is the focal point of a floundering Toronto Raptors team. I saw another turd by Scotty Barnes today, but we're not here to pee all over the Scotty Barnes stance. There's plenty of time for that, but we shouldn't be bringing up Scotty Barnes in conversations about All-Stars. It just seems inappropriate. So let's get back to the problem that lies ahead for the Cavs to get another representative in the All-Star game. And that is, the front court is absolutely stacked. The only avenue, in my view, for the Cavs to get a second All-Star into that game in Salt Lake City is if that person is Darius Garland. And unfortunately, it's a very muddy group of, you know, second-level guards in the Eastern Conference. Your starters should be, if you were basing it on play, the following five guys. Now, this likely won't work because four of them are front court players, and it's supposed to be three front court guys and two guards. But there's a glut of talent in the front court in the Eastern Conference, hence Jared Allen and Mobley's dilemma. You have Giannis doing 31, 11, and 5. He's played 24 games. That's more than enough. And his team is in first place as of right now. You have Jason Tatum also in the MVP conversations doing 38 and 4. On 47-36-86 splits, he's played 29 games coming into tonight. Kevin Durant, who's typical Kevin Durant, 37-5. and five. Donovan Mitchell, perhaps the most efficient of the bunch outside of maybe Durant. His three-point shooting, definitely the best in the Eastern Conference. He is the first guard that I have mentioned. And then Joel Embiid doing 33-10-5. Those are the five best players, in my view, in the Eastern Conference. But herein lies the problem. Four of those guys are front court players. So then who becomes the starting guard alongside Donovan Mitchell? Now, a fan vote is part of the discussion here. It's not simply about who does the best numbers. There's a scenario in which Donovan Mitchell could be pushed out if the fan vote is so overwhelmingly in somebody else's favor. But I think he's basically a shoe in to start, especially since Utah fans who are who love him and people who love narratives are going to love the idea of Donovan Mitchell starting an all-star game in Salt Lake City in front of the fan base that formerly supported him, probably still does support him, despite a somewhat Utah slanderous article I saw today from, I believe it was Mark Spears, where he talked about the racial issues, and I kind of feel bad for Utah. They lost Mitchell already. I don't like to see people kicked when they're down, I guess. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the all-star game. So who's the second front court guy to get in? As much as it pains me to say this, I think it's going to come down to three people, none of which are Darius Garland. The first one, and this one upsets me, is Jalen Brown, who while having an unbelievable season 
is not really a shooting guard. He's more of the small forward there. But they did it last year with DeMar DeRozan, where they took a guy who played small forward and power forward, and they jammed him into the backcourt. They could do it again this year, because DeMar DeRozan, coming into tonight, was doing 26-5-5 on reasonable efficiency, and he played 29 games. So his numbers stack up better than Garland's, too, if you want to look at efficiency in in addition to counting stats. But your backcourt could come down to Jalen Brown, Kyrie Irving, who has been on an absolute tear as of late. Say what you will about him, but the only thing holding him back in this conversation where he's putting up 26-5-5 is that he's only played 22 games. But by the time that this voting closes, as long as he continues playing, there's not going to be a big gap there. Then you have Trey Young, who's always been a counting stats monster, but the team is struggling this year and his efficiency blows. He's doing 27 points and 10 assists, but it's on 41%, 29% from three, and 90% from the line. That part's good. But his three-point shooting, terrible. His shooting from the field is on high volume, but low efficiency. But he is a fan favorite. I don't think it would be shocking if you saw Mitchell rivaling the same amount of votes that a Kyrie Irving or a Trey Young gets, despite the superior play and the superior record of the team that he plays for. Halliburton, I do think he'll make the All-Star game. He is leading the, the league in assists. He's doing great percentages. As of tonight, 47, 39, 88, and he's played nearly 30 games already. But to buoy his chances, the fact that the Pacers are far better than anyone expected, that has to work in his favor. So that leaves you with the fringe guys after that. I think I've mentioned the other guys that I think are shoe-ins. I mentioned the first five, Giannis Tatum, Durant, Mitchell, Joel Embiid. I mentioned the next couple, Jalen Brown, Pascal Siakam, Irving, Trey Young, I think those guys are all shoe-ins. I expect DeMar DeRozan to make it. He could possibly get jammed into the backcourt. Hopefully not, because again, he's a frontcourt player, but you don't know how the NBA makes these distinctions. Halliburton, I believe, will make it because he's a feel-good story. He's super young, and he's super efficient. Then you have six guys that are going to compete for the remaining what? If there's 15 spots, I've already taken 11 of them. So you're going to have four guys make it out of Chris Stapp's Porzingis, 22-9-3, and and he's played nearly 30 games. He's been healthy. He's been productive. The Wizards just simply aren't that good. You have Bam Adebayo, 21-10, on 53% from the floor. He's played 28 games. He's also a fantastic defender. Jimmy Butler. Now, he should be hurt by the fact that he's only played 20 games. He'll have significantly less games than a lot of these other stars I'm mentioning, but everybody views him as the leader of that Heat team. So if they're to thrive or if he's going to coast in on reputation, he's doing 22-7-6. and Now here's a dark horse that I don't think people give enough credit to. The Knicks are thriving as of late. If the season ended today, the Cleveland Cavaliers would be taking them on in the first round of the NBA playoffs, and that's in large part due to a seven-game win streak by the New York Knicks. Their leader... Jalen Brunson is averaging as many points a game as Darius Garland. He's averaging more rebounds, and he's averaging two less assists. But the difference is that Jalen Brunson has been deadly efficient. 47% from the field from a point guard is unreal. 37% from three and 89% from the line. And he's played in 30 games already. So I don't think with the New York market the way it is and the fan voting, 
he's going to garner a lot of votes. He's going to get a lot of attention just because of the fan voting process. And that is going to make it even more difficult for him to be overlooked when they're selecting reserves. No, he won't get in as a starter, but he will be a formidable backcourt opponent who could stand in the way of Darius Garland. Now, Garland's numbers, are they're solid. They're a tick down from last year, though. And while us as Cavs fans may rightfully acknowledge that if he puts up the same numbers on a team with one of the highest usage stars in the NBA and Donovan Mitchell, he should get more credit. The sad reality is his numbers are a tick down. And I think if we're being fair, numerically or role on the team-wise, I do believe a guy who's a, the leader of a team should be given the nod over somebody who's a secondary option, who's playing alongside Donovan Mitchell and has the luxury, you would think, of getting less attention than he got last year, but not being able to eclipse those numbers. I don't think that's a slight to Garland. There was always going to be a learning process to these guys playing together. But I don't know right now that you can make an argument that of this six people I'm about to list, Zinger, Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brunson, or DeJounte Murray, who's doing 21-5-6 on better efficiency, that he isn't in the bottom two of that group in terms of who would round out the other spots to get the Eastern Conference roster to 15. I think that's just a sad reality. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. A lot of things can change. Injuries can happen during this voting process. He could surge. All of those things are possible. But as it stands now, I certainly don't think he's a shoo-in, and I don't think Allen or Mobley are even in consideration. It's not about defensive impact. That may be a tiebreaker, but they would need far greater counting stats in order to win over these people in this discussion. I mean, we saw it last year. People convinced themselves that Scotty Barnes was the rookie of the year because he had similar numbers to Evan Mobley, which basically discounted the fact that Mobley is, was, and will always be a superior player on the defensive end, and that is where he truly can change a game. But he missed the games at the end of the season, and he got fucked. So this year, if you're holding out hope for two All-Stars, I think you're going to be disappointed. Hey, I guess we can all hope for crippling, devastating injuries to people like Jalen Brown or Kyrie Irving, or for them to just get in their own way. I saw that Jalen Brown was blaming the refs again. God forbid, with Jalen Brown or Kyrie Irving, anything that goes wrong, that can't possibly be their fault. Can't possibly take the littlest bit of accountability. And that's exactly what everyone wants to read. Somebody who's playing on a first or second place team, bitching about how they're officiated. That's the Fear of the Fro podcast. Get out there, cast your vote for the Cavs. That's what I want for Christmas. I want a positive review, and I want you to vote for the Cavs for the NBA All-Star Game. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, and this is the Fear the Fro podcast. Keep our names out of your mouth in the name of Jesus. Have a blessed day. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.